I had not seen for many years many good cases of people building startups globally or globally focused or some kind of circumstance where they had some particular existing relationship with a second country and that's how it happened. It wasn't really done systematically, but I think uh, now there is do or die situation on particularly early stage startups where they're working in industries that have been greatly impacted. And so how do you go about it? And what do you do? So first of all, well, hello there. This is Milena and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks podcast. This episode is a part of business focus series where we bring to you business leaders and experts in the retail space. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hybrid. Hybrid is the pioneer of hyperlocal retailing, combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPGs and retailers generate an increased return on physical retail space investment. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Josh Flannery, the head of Rainmaking Innovation Japan, an organization with a mission to solve world's problems by unleashing entrepreneurship. Josh started down the path of innovation and entrepreneurship back in 2004 when he commenced working with an edutech company, Learning Information Systems. In late 2005, Josh spun out SteadyLink and took it to Japan to service markets in Northern Asia. In 2008, the mother company of SteadyLink was acquired by Navitas. Over the last decade, Josh has been running entrepreneurship and startup programs for the University of New South Wales and the New South Wales government, as well as founded his own program, Innovation Dojo. When I asked Josh what makes him Josh, he said he was a connector of many kinds. He enjoys connecting people, organizations, and experiences. So without further ado, We'll dive right in and kick this episode off with Josh sharing his wealth of experience on the process of taking a company from one country to another. The question about what does it take or what's the process for taking a company global, it's kind of a timely one in Australia, but in the startup ecosystem globally, because in particular markets, the home market is shrinking based on this the impact of COVID-19 and in particular industries in other countries, it's actually growing. So I think it's becoming more urgent now for startups to look at what the global opportunities are. Having worked in the Sydney and the Australian innovation ecosystem for quite some time, for as long as I can remember, there was this rhetoric around act local, think global, and build companies that are globally ready and have like a global vision from day one. But, you know, the hundreds of startups that I I used to see, it was very rare that that was actually the case. And it's because the concept of building something for 
outside of where you actually are is almost impossible to do when you are trying to validate how useful your solution is against a problem that people you you are most likely trying to help or organizations you're most likely trying to help are local to you. I had not seen for many years many good cases of people building startups globally or globally focused or some kind of circumstance where they had some particular existing relationship with a second country and that's how it happened. It wasn't really done systematically. But I think uh, now there is do or die situation on particularly early stage startups where they're working in industries that have been greatly impacted. And so how do you go about it? And what do you do? So first of all, although I think it is good to think globally, I don't think there is much you should do about it other than know what the market sizes are in different countries and where your priority markets should be at the beginning when you're still building your company wherever you are. Because if you do not validate and if you do not build a business locally, you just simply won't have the credibility to be able to take it into a new market. If we're looking at, for example, what we're doing with rainmaking in Japan, whilst 95% of the startups that we're helping are foreign startups coming into Japan, one of the kind of keys to their success or them being selected happens to be their track record in their home country. For a global success story, I think a step toward that is actually conquering and proving that you have the the capability to conquer your local geography. And then once you have a track record with customers and case studies, you can use those case studies to approach similar companies that you'd worked with originally, but happen to have a presence overseas. A lot of the startups that we find are receiving attention from the corporations for collaboration over here are able to say, oh yeah, we we are working in industry A and we have these two or three case studies for what we've done in our own country. And we would love to put the time and resource and other financial investment ourselves into localizing what we did in our own country for insert new country or for Japan or wherever it is you want to expand into. That's kind of a a high level bringing technology from one country that's been proven somewhere into a second country. Like there's that. And then there's also recognizing that one size does not fit all. So I mentioned localization. And so depending on which um, market you're looking at, you may actually need to rethink your entire approach to the market and even change what your product is or your service is in order to be successful in, in the new market. Two comparable examples I can think of now. This is as much about business culture and different cultures as it is about exporting or taking a business somewhere else. So 
Firstly, one thing I'll always remember is when I was working at the University of New South Wales, there was an accelerator program called Founders 10X. That program was like the cream of the crop of all the university students, researcher and alumni led startups. So we picked the top 10 from hundreds. And basically we, we'd go through an intense 12 week accelerator program, but there was a portion of that where we would take the teams to the US to Silicon Valley and give them exposure to that ecosystem there, but also get them in front of Silicon Valley based venture capitalists and get some feedback. And it was really eye opening for me when we were listening to some of the feedback from those US VCs to the Australians, because what they were saying was, you guys are great. You're just as good as some of the US companies that we look at. But the way that you communicate your pitch, the way that you talk about, you know, the size of your opportunity is almost too humble. And you need to be sort of more out there and really talk up in a more aggressive way why you're going to take over the world with with your startup that you've worked so hard on versus some of the US startups that they've been listening to on a sort of regular basis. And that was really interesting because although you wouldn't think there is a huge culture gap between two countries that speak the same language, it was rather significant and it was impacting the the business opportunities that these Aussie uh, startups had. So that's one kind of insight into the, the kind of localization that founders of startups need to think about. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you're talking about Australians going into Japan, there are so many more barriers of entry, if you like. First of all, most of the decision makers or stakeholders, uh, you know, whether that's in venture capital or corporates that might want to partner with you or invest, first of all, they're not going to speak English or it's going to be rare that they're fluent in English or confident enough to make a business decision based on English communication alone. There are exceptions. So that's one. And the second one is the model of startups succeeding in Japan versus the US, for example, is very different. So in the US, it might be all about going there to raise a round of capital and use the networks of your venture capital and other investors to expand into the market and basically make a much bigger version of of what your Australian startup is over there. Whereas in Japan, it's more about you have to be more flexible with your original brand and with your original business model, because in many cases, the only real way to succeed is by partnering with an existing company. And that might mean that you create a joint venture. And that might mean that actually 
you're doing something quite different from what you had been doing in your Australian business. But if you're prepared to look at that as in, okay, I might be giving up part of my pie, but I'm growing the pie so much bigger than, than it would have been if I was going alone, then it makes sense. So I guess they're kind of two examples of the level of localization and adjustments and flexibility that you might need to do if you're seriously going to go into those markets and succeed. If you are looking for some resources on internationalization that is taking a company from one country to another, I co-authored and published a book chapter called What Makes a Global Business Model. To give you a gist what the paper is about, we explore three questions. One, what is the role of a business model in the success of global enterprises? Two, which common attributes do business models of successful global companies possess? And three, how to make a business model more suitable for global expansion. If this is something you are interested in, you can find the link to the publication in the description of the podcast. And now back to our discussion with Josh. So Josh, Japan is considered to be a rather tricky market to enter. From your experience, what makes a company Japan ready? Can you maybe identify three attributes that make a company succeed in Japan? There's probably a lot more than three, but I'll, I'll try and pick three of the most important. First of all, you really have to do your homework and invest in your own education. That might mean learning about the business culture, learning about your industry in Japan and how it is different, learning about the players and learning about how other companies in your sector have entered the market and what you can learn from that. So the second part is recognizing what the realistic pathways into entering the market are. As I kind of mentioned before, in a lot of cases, unless you are sort of a massive Google or a sales force, it probably requires partnering with an existing player, a local Japanese player in your industry. And so I think looking into the different common partnership models and also what parallel industries, what companies are operating, not necessarily doing the same kind of service as you, but are serving the same customer segment. They're the kind of partners that might be worth having a look into. And then I think the last one is when you're actually, you feel like you're ready to physically get on a plane and come across and start meeting people or even having video calls. I think you need to make sure that you know what will be expected of you and you're ready. And usually that means you have someone in your team or you're working with a third party that is going to be your person or organization to lean on for any communication translation related issues. 
And that goes beyond just speaking to someone who's bilingual. You really need someone that understands your industry and then they, they can make sure that what you're trying to explain gets you on the right foot when you're starting the relationships with new potential partners. Because I think maybe more than other places, first impressions are super, super critical. They can really make or break whatever the potential might be to work with a partner, regardless of how brilliant your technology is, or regardless of you know what you've happened to have achieved in your own country. So yeah, I think that's they're probably the three. Mm-hmm. A while back, we have released two podcast episodes on taking Hybrid to Japan and challenges faced and strategies employed to enter the Japanese market. One of the points that you mentioned, and I remember being discussed then, was the importance of having track record in your own country when entering the Japanese market. For those of you who are interested in hearing sort of a case study on what it takes to take a business to Japan and succeed, you can listen to Ben Henschke's and Hideaki Yoshimura's episodes on the same platform you are using right now. And switching our gears from the topic of internationalization towards entrepreneurship. Josh, what would you advise not to do as entrepreneur? Ooh, it's such a long list. We'll be here all day. (laughs) Um, I think in many of the education programs around entrepreneurship, they tend to begin with either design thinking methods or lean startup methodology. And they're definitely what you should follow once you know what kind of problem you're, you're going to solve. But the first problem is, you know, how do you decide what kind of company you want to start? And I think one of the common problems that I've seen is people will often be attracted to a particular industry or or a particular technology type. And they will basically use that as the starting point and try to build a business based on the fact, for example, that they're really passionate, quote unquote, you know, about AI or blockchain or finance because they see that as, you know, one of the most lucrative industries to be in in there with. And so I think rather than that, the process or the what should weigh in when you're considering what kind of company to start or what startup to start, it has to be something that is somewhat a natural fit for you. So it's got to be something that you feel in your comfort zone about some element of it. And it could be that the problem that you're trying to solve with your new startup is helping a a group of people or a market segment or a type of company that you have experience with or in. For example, if we're going back to how I was working in in the sushi restaurant, After three years, even though I was still not 20 yet, I would have had some good insights into 
how customers in Australian sushi bars behave. And I would have had uh, firsthand credible reference points that if I was to propose a new service or product for that group of people, I could lean on that and be quite credible and have actual real experiences and and a good overview of what those people are spending what kind of backgrounds they seem to be from and, and other sort of features of that customer market. It could be just by looking around in their university classes and tutorials and observing people and seeing what you actually care about. So that's one thing, to have some credibility and some real connection to the problem that the company you want to start is helping or, or servicing or, or solving the problem for. I think the other thing is to definitely go through this lean startup approach rather than jumping in and and just starting to provide a service when you haven't validated, is there really enough of a need for what I want to do? And then if there is a need, are people actually willing to pay for that? And then if they are willing to pay for it, how many people are actually willing to pay for it? Or, or was did I just get lucky with the, the uncle that I asked who said the right thing? Uh, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I, I guess it keeps going from there. So, okay, it seemed to be a decent percentage of people I'm asking that are willing to pay for this. What's the price point? How much would they pay? How much do they care about this? What are they spending their money on otherwise try and solve the same problem? It just keeps building and building. So you you build up this kind of evidence-based plan using this thing called Lean Startup Methodology, which if you're not familiar with, look it up. There are so many books and and things written up about it. So yeah, for for young people thinking about that or or first-timers, regardless of age, definitely look that up, yeah. So to summarize three lessons that you have learned, one, don't be too in love with your idea, therefore the importance of pivoting. Two, if you're trying to validate your idea, don't go to your family. And three, the importance of a natural fit. So Josh, if I want to start a venture, What am I looking to have to get into an accelerator program? Yeah, that's that's a huge question because there are so many different programs with different systems and requirements. But let me try to give a bit of a a summary at a high level from the programs I've been familiar with. Generally, from what I've seen, there tend to be different types of programs depending on the maturity of the project. What is spoken about most often are accelerators. And accelerators are usually when you have something more than just an idea. So you you probably have a team of two or three people at least, and you're all working. Usually it requires you to be working on that full time, but that's case by case, depending on the program. And so basically what what you are doing is working full time with this group of people that normally would have different but complementary skill sets 
it's a bit out of date now, but one of the combinations that was often talked about was hacker, hipster, and hustler. The hacker being the kind of someone who could build the prototype or build the whatever it is, the technology, usually with an engineering or a maker kind of background. And then you have the the hipster, which is designer and the marketing side of things, making sure that things are presented in a great and impressive way. And then the hustler, who is the salesperson, the person that does all the pitching, the person that would be trying to raise the investment. So having a kind of group like that together and your goal is basically looking for a scalable and repeatable business model. That's what you would be looking to get into an accelerator program. What those accelerators tend to look at team. Are they ticking all the boxes based on the different profiles of team members that they would see fit as taking it to the next level? They'd be looking at the problem that the startup is trying to solve. Is it a problem for a, a large market of, of customers? Is it something that is actually realistically achievable with the, the existing team that's pitching that? Or can they prove a pathway to, for that to becoming achievable? And then traction. So have they proved that they're actually serious about this? When did that group of people first get together and how much have they managed to achieve in the short time that they've been together as an indicator as are they going to work hard on this so that is kind of for that stage before that most people aren't at that stage when they first start thinking about startups and there are programs which tend to be boringly called pre-accelerator programs And that is a lot more about a individual skill building and and becoming familiar with the kind of methodologies we talked about earlier, but also they kind of are supposed to help you work out that tricky question of what kind of startup should I start? And then also what kind of team members should I be looking for? And a lot of them help you to, you know, matchmake with other potential people who might be interested in doing something together with you. And for those programs, they tend to be really flexible in terms of at what stage you need to be at. Often you just need to prove that you're motivated enough and you're prepared to learn and you have the right attitude to be able to be coached. And that's it. So in Australia and and in Japan too, there's a, a growing number of these kind of programs. And for people, you know, who don't go to university, there are private companies doing almost the exact same thing too. Mm. What cash investments am I looking at to join Accelerator program or how much equity am I going to be giving away? What is considered to be a good deal? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think depending on on where you sit in the industry, there, there are many opposing views on this. Personally, I don't think that people should be paying to go through an accelerator program. And usually the business model does allow this depending on what it is. So 
in the university run programs that we had, all of them were free of charge. The only caveat was in the more mature startup accelerator that we were running. So for the top tier of the university startups, there was a cash investment attached to it. And in return, there was a negotiable percentage of equity from the company that that would be given to the university as a kind of a way of having skin in the game, if you like, to motivate both sides to really work together. But outside of of university, I think there are different tiers. So if you're talking about a startup going into an accelerator program, usually that's for free. You would usually have to give up some equity in the company and the percentage and how much money you get for it, there's there's such a wide spectrum. And I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all answer for what's a good deal. I think it depends on how advanced your company is. Because in some cases, when you're super advanced, the startups, which I I would call more scale-ups that are coming into our Japan program, there's no way they would consider giving up equity for a, a program because they're they're sort of beyond those typical kind of deals. But if it was a, a very early stage university level startup, in some ways they might get a lot more out of it and a lot more fundamental things out of it that will impact their entire startup lifetime you might be more willing to give up more in return for less if you're at an earlier stage, if that makes sense. So, Josh, I imagine being a government employee was a rather different experience to that of spearheading university-run initiatives. Can you share what kind of new perspective you have gained in that process? That was actually a huge learning curve for me, jumping into that role, not only because it was such a kind of high-profile initiative in the startup ecosystem in Sydney, and it was sort of a $35 million investment from the New South Wales government, and essentially it was the hub that was to pull together all of the different players across the Sydney ecosystem and then leverage that not just for the the value toward the the startups that were within, but also taking another step back and looking at as an asset of the state, how can you leverage a hub like that so vibrant to more regional areas in the state? That was one side, the scale of the initiative and the importance of it to the, the state government and the economy. But the other side to it personally was I had never, I mean, I'd worked in universities which have their own pace and their own style of work and they're very uh, interesting, but working for the government was next level again. And so being my first government role, I had to learn on the job the different ways of of collaborating internally, all of the different processes involved. And I guess I built up a new empathy for 
you know, what externally you would think is just government takes forever to do anything. There, there is so, many, so much going on behind closed doors. And, and I kind of started to understand why things don't happen as, as quickly as you might expect. And some of those things were like the greater amount of risk that the government has to deal with versus companies or startups or anyone from the public. They just have such a huge number and variance of of types of risk that they have to mitigate against before doing anything at all. And there are processes attached to each of these. And, you know, I I can feel listeners falling asleep just hearing about it. (laughs) Well, you should try working in it. (laughs) But um, it's not that the people working in government are, are not great and not brilliant and not really intelligent. It's just the beast that is government and and the way that it has to navigate risk just equals a whole different way of working. So I learned a lot about that. And then that was kind of balanced out by this amazingly cool situation of having 11 floors of 450 startups in one building. And there were, I think, four or five different corporate innovation departments. The Microsoft Global Accelerator was in there, the Caltex Open Innovation Department. There are a few others. There were four major brands of co-working space inside. And then there were a couple of government organizations that have particular services for the startup community for example, the department that deals with procurement. So basically helping to purchase from startups on behalf of the government, that department was in there too. So it was, it was a real eclectic and large and vibrant ecosystem in one building. And then once I got my head around that, it was, okay, now that this is doing so many great things, how can we leverage that for the more developing ecosystems outside of the CBD? How can we link this to Western Sydney? How can we link it to regional New South Wales in a kind of hub and spoke model? That was uh, really a different perspective versus being inside of a tech company or even a university as a player, which are very different too. If you were to identify, let's say, one or two major learnings that you carry to this day from your work with universities, what would those learnings be? Probably the first one would be the importance of the whole ecosystem and all of its players, rather than just the ones that you hear about more. The roles that startups play versus the roles that corporates play versus the role the governments play and the universities play. And they all actually rely on each other in different ways. Just having the, the experience to, on particular projects to oversee that and to try and strengthen some of the, the links between those different segments of the ecosystem. I gained a more holistic appreciation for the ecosystem and all of its players. Whereas maybe before it was just about startups and VCs or what have you. The second thing would be more about the role of government in that story, because 
I think there's there's a natural tendency to hate on government. <laughs> it's usually because they're so slow. So it's a global thing. Yeah, it's, it's a global thing, right? But they're also like so valuable if you can tap into them the right way. And they have this unique neutral standing point. And these days they're incentivized to have more startups succeed. And they're actually measuring, you know, on their own KPIs, how much capital startups are raising, how many business interactions are happening between corporates and startups, partially because they want to take credit for it and to claim that it, it's actually as a result of policy, but also because they have gone and put their money where their mouth is and and put together big sort of initiatives like Sydney Startup Hub and now the Sydney Tech and Innovation Precinct, which is much bigger still. And then um, there's equivalents here in Osaka. There's the Umekita project near Osaka Station, which is another big precinct and government-backed. So I guess they would be two things that I now feel were precious learnings. What inspired you to make a move to rainmaking Innovation Japan? This is really personal and a professional story. So on the professional side, the fact that a really progressive company from Copenhagen, Denmark, was coming into Osaka to do this program that was really in line with that mission that I mentioned earlier of you know, wanting to help 2005 version of Josh, an enthusiastic entrepreneur and interested in taking technology into Japan. That was squarely on what this company was doing. Although I had done something similar in my own business, Innovation Dojo, before, um, this was a much better funded and uh, more progressive approach than what I had previously tried. So from the professional perspective, a gift on a plate of saying, hey, you know that thing that you were trying to do for years? Here, here's something we prepared earlier. Um, that was one side of it. In the background, it would be a lie to say that the social and personal motivations of coming back to Japan didn't play a, a massive part. My wife's originally from Osaka, Japan. I have two daughters and they both were really keen to spend some more time with their Japanese grandmother. And so I, I did have my radar on, despite being in amazing roles with Sydney Startup Hub and prior to that at the University of New South Wales, I had always been looking out for opportunities like this to enable me to, to bring my family here and have at least a few years, if not longer, for my kids to learn the language of their mother and, and also spend that quality time that they had been able to spend with my parents in Sydney. So that's the two main factors. So your organization focuses on solving world's problems. Can you give me a few examples of what some of those problems are? There's two broad categories that we do that by. One of the, the more traditional ways that we've been doing it for some time is looking at some of the problems that startups might be trying to solve, but recognizing that 
it can be much more effective if they do that in collaboration with a large organization that has more resources, more funding, more experience in different areas that a startup may not across all industries, working to basically provide this connection and translation between startups and large corporations to go after problems where they've got a common interest. And I guess the second category is more around the bigger picture of world problems aligned with the SDGs. And so we're doing an increasing amount of work looking at where innovation and startups and entrepreneurship intersects with solving the SDG goals and and more social impact related projects. The latest example of that is we just created a map of the world's SDG related startups and it enables you to search this kind of compass and recognize which particular SDGs are well-served or underserved by the current uh, number of startups out there working on particular uh, related projects. And we're putting that out there for the world to sort of use and and hopefully uh, not just us as, as a company, but others that can access that data will be able to gain some insights and then create some of their own impact in that way. So yeah, that, that's probably it. So in the last few minutes before we finish our conversation, I would like to ask you a few closing questions that okay. are a bit more fun. Not yeah, like the yeah. other questions weren't fun. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> one of the things I found was you were a professional sake taster, buyer, and connoisseur. Can you <laughs> share one interesting fact about sake? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, I did do a course which resulted in me being qualified in this sake tasting, understanding how it's made and understanding some of the differences and nuances. I mean, I think about this as like more of a hobby than anything. But to the question, there's a lot that I think, particularly in Western countries, that people don't know or understand or have a misconception about what sake actually is or or how it should be drunk first of all i think the old favorite is you know warm sake versus chilled sake it's not uncommon to go into a restaurant in australia for example japanese restaurant and they might say do you want your sake hot or cold but the fact is that Actually, about 90% or more of the sake in the world is meant to be drank only chilled or at room temperature. You're not meant to have sake hot. There is particular 10% or less types of sake that uh, you are supposed to warm up and it's made for that purpose. So I think that's why a lot of people have a bad experience when they try sake because they've heated something up that isn't meant to be. <laughs> so that's one. The second one maybe is the taste of sake is influenced by a couple of things. And one of them is the type of water that is used in the process of making sake. I had no idea before sort of getting into this little world that there is hard water and soft water. 
And hard water just means there's more minerals in the water itself, and that affects the flavors. The hard water is common in some of the coastal areas of Japan, and you tend to have like a stronger flavor. Whereas the soft water in places like Kyoto is sweeter and sort of floral. So, yeah, that's my, getting my sake nerd on here. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the, the last one is something called rice milling. Sake is made from rice originally. So they, they mill rice, which basically means taking a percentage of the surface of grains of rice. And, and they use that rice in the process. And depending on how much they take off, that impacts directly the quality of the sake. So, for example, if they really mill it down to 50% of what the, the grain of rice was originally, so most of the outside's off, that's going to be a really high quality sake. Whereas if they just do it minimally and there's still, you know, 80% of the rice grain there, they're the kind of less expensive, cheaper sakes. And that that's traced back to it just, there's more effort involved in taking more of it off. So yeah, that probably was too much info. But <laughs> I know um, I tried it, but now yeah. I feel like I'm ready because I have so much knowledge. <laughs> yeah, you can just walk that out at dinner parties and um, <laughs> scare off the guests. <laughs> Last thing before I let you go, I've asked you a lot of questions, but I'm sure that there is something that you wish people asked you more often. What is that? Ooh, yeah. I think people need to take a step back a bit more when they're having conversations with other people and Yeah, spend some time finding out about what they care about. Even if that's in a business context, finding out what people care about helps you understand the person that you're speaking with. And I think that is the basis of starting good relationships, just getting to know what makes people tick and, and what they care about is probably one I think people should slow down and, and invest some time in doing more of. I would like to finish today's episode with sharing a piece of advice that Josh has given during our conversation. When you are doing a particular role, there are always things that you are doing, learning and experiencing that are not in the job description. Sometimes it takes a while to realize that you are actually acquiring something new while you are doing the job you are paid to do. The most important skill is being able to optimize what you have done before and repackage, link and make it relevant to the next step. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Stay tuned and till the next time everyone.